1: In 2013, Rebecca Van Dudeverd wrote a blog, uh, blog post called Young Evangelicals Are Getting High. Uh, this blog post generated multiple responses and much reflection. Her argument was that millennials are increasingly enamored with liturgy, tradition, and the church polities of Anglican, Lutheran, and especially the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox faiths. And indeed, we see in the 21st century there has been a small but steady and noisy trickle of evangelicals into Rome and well, not Constantinople exactly, but whatever word we use for Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, in his 2017 book, In Search of Ancient Roots, Kenneth Stewart writes that this movement is largely the result of an identity crisis on the part of evangelicals because we have lost touch with our own past. My name is Coyle Neal, and I'm an Associate Professor of Political Science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today to talk about this is Dr. Kenneth Stewart, Professor of Theology and Church History at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where he lives with uh, his wife Jane and attends Lookout Mountain Presbyterian. He is the author of Ten Myths About Calvinism from InterVarsity Press, and the book that we're talking about today, also from InterVarsity Press, In Search of Ancient Roots. Dr. Stewart, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for inviting me.
1: Uh, Now, uh, as as a stereotypical evangelical, uh, I see church history as as stretching all the way between uh, the Bible, uh, somewhere uh, where I get bored a couple of chapters into Acts, uh, up until the release of the latest Hillsong single, uh, with maybe some guy, probably an extremist of some kind named Martin Luther, somewhere in between. Uh, What's what's wrong with my view of, of church history?
0: Well, it won't keep you from being ranked as an actual believer. Um, you know, there's not an intellectual threshold uh, for being included in the salvation that Christ has won for us. Um, so you could say that there's safety in numbers. Your, your perspective wouldn't be um, that different from the perspective of the vast majority of Christians um but I would think that this is an attitude that is less excusable for an evangelical Christian um than for others because evangelical Christianity claims to be uh the keeping alive the maintaining of um, the Christianity of the New Testament. Now, we can claim um, to continue the Christianity of the New Testament without attending to the claim, that is, verifying it, uh, cultivating the link. Um, But um, I would say that it's dangerous to neglect this. And it is the neglect of this that has left a portion of the evangelical Christian world vulnerable to the counter suggestion, which is that um, evangelical Christianity is a Johnny-come-lately. There are a lot of thoughtful Christians today who accept that there was no evangelical Christianity before the age of Wesley and Whitfield. That is to say that it is um, a reworking of Christianity produced in the Age of the Enlightenment. Um, I'm familiar with that claim. I think it's interesting. But the traditional evangelical Christian view um, is that ours is an expression of Christianity traceable to the New Testament. Um, And in most centuries, except the 20th, this is a claim that was cultivated... And um, articulated in quite a clear way, so our losing touch with our ancient Christian past is a recent phenomenon, uh, and it's one that's already
1: being um, attended to in a fresh way. So, what uh, before before we get to uh, how it's being uh, attended to, uh, what re- what went wrong in the 20th century? Uh, why is it that? Uh, all of a sudden, sudden meaning that you know, it's almost a century ago now, uh, evangelicals lose that sense of continuity with the Christians of the past. Uh, why, why, does there, why does this break occur?
0: Well, in the opening sections of the book, I isolate a couple of factors that contribute to this uh, problem. Uh, one is simply the distance of time. Uh, the farther that humans are separated from any critical event, um, the foggier they become about the details.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: that's, that's one problem. Uh, but the other is that the expressions of Christianity, which have most carefully articulated evangelicalism's relationship to Christian antiquity, are the churches that grew out of the Reformation period. Um, a Lutheran, an Anglican, a Presbyterian, um, some expressions of the Baptist or Anabaptist movement, because they emerged in the 16th century, just as a, a method of defending their existence, they had to be able to articulate what was the relationship to Christianity before Luther. Uh, the, the charge was hurled in Luther's faith, face. Um, you know, where was your faith before your lifetime? Uh, so um, strands of the Baptist movement, Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, uh, And in a derivative way, also Methodists, because they're derived from Anglicanism, all of these expressions of Protestantism have at their foundation uh, an explication of how they relate to Christianity of antiquity. This is one of the purposes served by the creeds and confessions of faith produced in the 16th century. Uh, What they are doing is indicating how much of early Christianity they still affirm. Um, Now, uh, what does that mean for today? Uh, The largest and the fastest growing uh, segment of American Christianity today is what are called independent churches. Um, Independent churches are not a new phenomenon. Uh, But in this category, you have movements like uh, Calvary Chapel, um, Word of Faith. Um, I don't mean to dump on these groups. I don't mean to suggest in any way that they're illegitimate. It's simply that they are not indebted in any obvious way to the historic Protestant tradition, which since 1500 felt it needed to Uh, explain what its relation to pre-Reformation Christianity was. Independent Christianity of the 20th and the 21st century has not felt that need and is uh, the most ambivalent uh, about Christian antiquity. And a person who has either come to faith or been affiliated with independent Christianity, I would maintain, is the person who is most vulnerable to the apologetic efforts of Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy because that uh, evangelical Protestant in an independent framework has no compass um, to help him or her evaluate the claims of Catholicism or Orthodoxy. The other thing that I would point to is that uh, in the early, uh, the first third of the 20th century, Uh, there was such theological combat uh, between conservative and liberal Protestants uh, that both sides, liberal as well as conservative Protestantism, turned away from Christian antiquity. Um, If you're raised in the evangelical tradition, you can easily come to conclude that it's only evangelicalism which has neglected this. But my own studies convinced me that um, from 1930 until about 1955, all forms of Protestant Christianity, though for different reasons, left the early church alone. Um, and uh, so the recovery of interest, both by liberal and conservative Protestants, has been underway since about 1955. And um, so my second point is that there was an across-the-board neglect of Christian antiquity uh, by the vast majority of Protestants.
1: Uh, how uh this sort of my my sense is that it, it's th- this this isn't just a problem that arises from within evangelicalism. It's a a, a problem that stretches across American culture, right? So, so non-Christians have no sense of the past or any kind of connection in the past. It's, uh, I mean, of course, even more true in the 21st century, but even in the 20th century, we, we could see the movement towards, uh, obsession with the now, right? Uh, obsession with what's going on right at this moment and utter lack of concern with, with anything that came before, uh, before we, we get into uh, uh, some of your your responses to it um, is is this uh, a case of uh, the the church absorbing too much of the culture uh, whether for good motivations as as I I think you, you mentioned Calvary Chapel I, I think I'm willing to say that Chuck Smith had good motivations for what he was doing even if I really intensely dislike the results of it right uh, there, there was a, a an intention there to reach out to the culture uh, by means of this, Cutting loose of the the older stuff, you know. So so music is sort of the the, the best example I think of some of his original changes. Uh, adopting the the music of the culture, but quote unquote baptized music. So Christian rock instead of the the traditional hymns. Uh, but in doing so, forgetting that there is. Christian music out there that the church has been singing for however many centuries. Uh, Am I, am I, am I reading too much into that? Is, is this something that is genuinely our own problem or is this a, a cultural situation or, or some combination thereof?
0: Uh, I would say it's a combination. Um, If you want to find expressions of Christianity that are really conscious of the ancient Christian past Uh, You can find these, and the best place to find these is in Europe, where the church is imploding. Um, uh, But if you go into a traditional Catholic region of Europe, Spain or Ireland, you know, there are people there who can tell you the lives of the saints. Um, But this does not carry with it any particular... um, guarantee of Christian vitality. Um, most thoughtful readers in American Christianity know that that Christianity in Europe is imploding. So uh, it is true that American Christianity has been uh, shortchanging what could be called Christian heritage. Um, but the consequences of this neglect, are like a time-release pill. Uh, The effects of the neglect are more manifest over time. Um, I'm I'm glad you've used the example of, um, of Calvary Chapel, though, because I think that what evangelical Christians in North America need to realize is that our adaptability is one of our great strengths. Um... This is the working out of the missionary impulse in evangelicalism to take the gospel across cultural barriers, even if they're cultural barriers inside a single country or culture, and to uh, express the Christian message in forms that are timely and relevant. Um, So I have to be careful in my book Uh, and in conversing about it, to make clear that I really affirm this as a strength, uh, the adaptability and the the missionary impulse. Um, But the consequences of the neglect of Christian heritage in the interests of adaptability um, become more and more manifest over time. And that is what I think we are dealing with now. Um, um, If if you compare compare the the cause of evangelical Christianity to to a a cargo vessel, we've thrown a lot of cargo overboard um, to streamline um, our expression of the Christian faith. And... um, When you look into the testimonial literature um, composed by people who have left evangelical Protestantism for Catholicism and Orthodoxy, uh, very often they are in reaction against stripped-down versions of Christianity. Um, That is not to say that people in mainline churches, uh, people in more traditional expressions of evangelicalism are not vulnerable but their expressions of Christianity have at least not denigrated the Christian past whereas independent forms of Christianity have uh
1: one one more question uh, about uh uh sort of the the foundations of this problem and then we'll we'll move into your your suggestions for what we what we should be doing um in, in terms of uh uh, let's let's say that uh, I I were to sit down uh, as an evangelical Christian with a uh, a Roman Catholic and a, uh, an Eastern Orthodox, uh, and they were to say to me, "Look, your your uh, air quotes here tradition uh, is is just a few years old. Uh, we're we're in a church that hasn't changed since you know." And then we can we can pick our date uh, for for each of them depending on what kind of uh, uh, what kind of uh, Roman Catholic and what kind of Eastern Orthodox uh, believer they are. Uh, are they right? Um, do they uh, do? Do they have something? So even uh, you, you say that uh, evangelicalism is, is older than Wesley. Uh, let's let's go ahead and say that I grant that. Let's uh, let's say that yeah, all all the way back to Martin Luther, right? Uh, that's that's when evangelicalism gets its start. Uh, the, the, can the can the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox still win the uh, the antiquity debate? Uh, when the the, the the Roman Catholic can at least point back to uh, I don't I don't even know what a good point there uh, the Fourth Lateran Council or something like that, and the uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox believer can uh, can point back to uh the the council council of constantinople or second constantinople or some second nicaea i forget what the seventh one is uh whatever that seventh ecumenical council is that i don't remember off the top of my head uh do, do they still win the antiquity argument
0: um there are different ways of coming at this uh coil um you're probably aware, because you stand in the Baptist tradition, that there have been some uh, Baptist thinkers and writers who have attempted to prove that there have always been Baptists.
1: Uh, the landmarkists.
0: The landmarkists, right. Um, they're, they're wrong, by the way. <laughs> uh, but all I'm asking is that we acknowledge that uh, landmarkists were driven by the felt need sure. to establish a, a line of continuity. Um, The approach that I take to this is twofold. Uh, Number one, on closer inspection, uh, Catholics and Orthodox who make the claim never to have altered uh, or that there has been no development of ideas um, inside their tradition, It is not that difficult to show that that is untrue. Um, You've mentioned uh, the Lateran Councils. Uh, Until 1215, um, you could not be harassed as a Catholic if you oppose the idea that in the Lord's Supper, uh, the bread and the wine are transformed. After 1215, it was a theological crime to oppose that. So uh, I use this as an example that the Catholic tradition, though it likes to present itself as timeless and unchanging, uh, has in fact undergone a kind of theological evolution from a less defined to a more defined. Um, but the other side of this is that the positive approach that I have tried to take in the in the book is to argue that uh, evangelical Protestants are in fact the continuators of um, a heritage of dissent um, going all the way back into early Christianity. Um, uh, evangelical Christianity does not recognize the need or the rightness for a central bishop of the church at Rome. Uh, in, in that issue, we continue a point of view traceable back uh, to the age of Cyprian, you know, in the third century. Uh, he was not opposed to there being a bishop of Rome, uh, but he was in favor of the equality of bishops, you know, throughout the Mediterranean world. Um, So my argument is that we are the continuators of what could be called dissent or uh, minority reports, which kept recurring uh, in pre-Reformation Christianity. And uh, there is very little maintained by Martin Luther that was not maintained by various spokesmen Um, in earlier Christian centuries. So our continuity is not about sacramental practices. This was landmarkism. Um, Our continuity is in uh, the ongoing maintaining of convictions, which were never absent from early Christianity. And um, uh, this is true also about salvation by faith. Um, This is what was so central to Luther. But Luther was by no means the originator of this emphasis,
1: and and at this point in the in the conversation with our you know uh, uh, imaginary Roman Catholic and and I, I shouldn't keep saying Eastern Orthodox. I know so much less about Eastern Orthodoxy as as most Protestants that I I really should leave them to the side to some extent just to be fair. Uh, but at this point uh, in in our imaginary conversation, uh, uh, one of one of two things is going to happen by uh, first by saying well there there's always been this minority report you know there's there's a fourth ladder in Council and then there's you know almost immediately a Wycliffe who says no 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 this is this is Nonsense and this is rubbish. Uh, uh, there, the reply is going to be, well, yes, the church has always had to deal with heretics. Uh, so that's 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 going to be sort of one one stream. Uh, the other the other response is is going to be a, a shift uh, in in the uh, uh, in the position held by these individuals, uh, particularly by the the Roman Catholic, uh, away from the church has never changed uh, into sort of John Henry Newman territory uh, where the the argument now becomes, well, the, the church has changed, but it, it's an organic growth, right? The, the, the church has been the same, the same way uh, that a, an acorn grows into an oak, right? It's, it's the same thing. It just, it develops and unfolds over time. So yes, uh, prior to, Fourth Lateran Council, you could hold different views on communion and technically not be a heretic, uh, but that council is the legitimate uh, and, and logical and, and they would say, biblical outgrowth of everything that was taught in the Bible, everything that unfolded in the early church, uh, all of the development of the Middle Ages, uh, and and going on into the, now into the 21st century.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, so, so at that point, uh, the argument that they're they're making is still, well, we're the true church because we can trace ourselves all the way back. Uh, you Protestants, you have to deal with this problem, especially of the Middle Ages. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, you can you can look back and you can see. Okay, Cyprian has this idea of the equality of bishops. We can see, you know, as a Baptist, I would point out, hey, bishops were elected, right? I mean, they were they were uh, uh, congregationally chosen. Uh, sure. Uh, 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 where, uh, I think even, uh, 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 so even other Protestants are going to disagree with, uh, with, uh, with that particular practice. Uh, but the, the Roman Catholic can say, no, 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 we can, we can trace it all the way through uh, without, without sort of any stops along the way. Uh, you guys have this, this, yeah, sort of some similarities, especially in the, the handful of apostolic writings we've got. Uh, and then there's this gap of a thousand years where everything looks Catholic or Orthodox for the most part. Uh, and then Protestants show up again. Um, how, how do we deal with that? Uh, where, uh, How do we respond to the argument of, of continuity uh, of development, if not exact continuity of doctrine?
0: It's easier to address the second part of your question than the first. Um, as I try to explain in the book, neither Catholics nor Protestants accepted the idea of doctrinal development until the age of John Henry Newman. Um, John Henry Newman put it on the radar screen. At first, Catholics were as opposed to this idea as Protestants were, because both held quite woodenly uh, to the notion that each was in possession of the original expression of Christianity. Um, But having thought about it, um, Protestants bought into the idea of doctrinal development, but allowing that there could be doctrinal declension, that is, developments of a negative kind, as well as positive doctrinal progress. Um, This was their biggest criticism of Newman, that he... um, uh, almost like a Whig, <laughs> who who looks back on the past, uh, seeing it leading inevitably to the circumstances we have at present. Um, they didn't think that Newman's conception had any self-correcting mechanism in it. Um, Newman was unable or unwilling to allow that anything had happened by way of development, which was regrettable. And... Um, it's easy to show that there have been regrettable developments. One obvious example would be the mandatory celibacy of priests. Um, The mandatory uh, celibacy of priests came in around the time of the Fourth Lateran Council, and it was the imposition on regular clergy of standards previously applied to monks. Uh, This happened under the leadership of a pope who had been a monk. Uh, This was a development of a very dubious and questionable kind. Uh, So um, development of doctrine, though it is not something that enough Protestants have thought about, uh, this argument is not, um, how can I say it? It's not a slam dunk. Um, Catholics should be giving more ground on this question than they do, uh, because they were as opposed to the idea of doctrinal development as Newman's critics were. It's really only since the Second Vatican Council, uh, 1963 to 1965, that Catholicism has embraced Newman's idea of doctrinal development. Until that time, they would not give official recognition to this.
1: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll say I think the yeah, the chapter on Newman uh, was the the best chapter in the book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and I, I say that as someone who has a very mixed relationship with Newman. As a as a political conservative, uh, I, I appreciate a lot of his his political thought and. I especially appreciate a lot of his thought about higher education. I, I don't agree with all of it, but his, his book, uh, uh, the idea of the university I think is, is wonderful. Um, but theologically the damage he did to the church of England is, is irreparable. And I mean, uh, I, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, yeah, go pick up this book alone for the not, not alone, but uh, at least for the chapter on Newman, uh, uh, and enjoy the rest also. Um, we should move into uh, some of your, uh, uh, some of your, uh, uh, suggestions for, for, uh, directions that evangelicals need to move. Uh, again, I I think, uh, I think it's understandable the, the appeal of Rome, uh, the, the appeal of Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, in our particular cultural setting where, where everything is based on right now, where everything is immediate to have people come along and say, uh, Look, we we have stable, lasting tradition. We have church services that haven't changed, uh, well, you know, since Vatican II, but you know, uh, even even uh, uh, prior to that. Uh, what should we be doing in our own churches uh, should we should we be trying to uh, resurrect a Protestant version of monasticism uh, should we be uh, uh, bringing uh, some aspects of traditional practices back into the church what does that look like uh, that's a wide-ranging question that you know covers half your book so so pick whichever direction you want to want to run with and, and go with it
0: um, in the last chapter of the book I try to ask some probing questions of um, evangelical Protestant readers. And uh, the questions come down to this. Um, I am not faulting evangelical Christianity for its adaptability. Uh, I look on our adaptability as a strength. That being said, what is there that visibly demonstrates our claim to be an expression of the original Christianity, uh, of the Christianity of antiquity. And the point I'm trying to make is that we have, if we are extremely adaptable, we have just about shorn away um, every reminder of antiquity that could be present in our church services. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, what do we sing? Uh, The evangelical tradition I grew up in uh, mostly sang material since D.L. Moody. Um, That could have been improved upon. Uh, But if I go to a contemporary worship service today, um, surely nothing older than 25 years will be sung, and most of the music will be more recent than that. Uh, There is a tremendous uh, heritage of hymnody from across the centuries, which if we used it, would bind us to antiquity, but we don't. We don't. Uh, Another example is, do we have any place in our church services for the use of the ancient creeds? Um again, this was no part of my evangelical upbringing, but I came to appreciate um, by going into a different strand of Protestantism, Presbyterianism, that there is a, a useful place for the use of the um, Apostles and Nicene Creed uh, in church services. Um, the use of these um, ties us to antiquity. And it is a demonstration that our faith is the faith of the early church. Um, another example is that there is a case to be made for a careful utilization of days in what is called the church year. This can be this can be uh, overdone, and I am very conscious of the danger. But um, not only uh, Christmas. Uh, Good Friday and Easter, uh, those are observed in evangelical churches, but uh, also days like Ascension Day, uh, the marking of Jesus going bodily into heaven, uh, the day of Pentecost. Um, These ought to be marked as significant days in the church year, uh, but evangelical Christianity, by and large, uh, pays not even lip service to these things. Um, These are actually Christian education tools because they they force us uh, to come to terms with the major turning points of uh, Jesus in his earthly career and also the turning points in apostolic Christianity. Um, So uh, I'm not arguing for an uncritical use of the church here, but we could expand our use of it and in so doing, uh, tie ourselves to early Christianity. Um, I think I think those are the main examples that I give in the book, uh, but I think it's safe to say that an awful lot of evangelical Christianity is vulnerable to the charge that it has erased or um, removed reminders of our links, With ancient Christianity, and I'm not arguing for anything more than a fusion or a combination of old and new. Um, One of the paradoxes is is that though restless Protestants look into Catholicism and believe they find it something that is changeless, um, in that same last chapter of the book, I show. That from inside Catholicism, Catholic leaders are so worried about their declining numbers that they are more and more ready to incorporate features of evangelical worship into their services in an attempt uh, to make themselves more contemporary. So uh, people who leave Protestantism for Catholicism and Orthodoxy are looking for a romantic ideal, the value of which is ceasing to bind Catholics and Orthodox, uh, who themselves are more interested in crossover.
1: Yeah, I, uh, um, yeah, and and I think uh, again, I'm 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 not an expert on this, but I think we see even some of that with the the current Pope, right, or or the. Uh, one of the current popes, since Benedict's still around, uh, uh, but Francis, right, is is uh, is no bastion of traditionalism or the past. I mean, he's he's very much uh, looking at the culture uh, and and drawing that into Roman Catholicism uh, in in a way that's not necessarily out of line with with some of what's gone on in the 20th century in Roman Catholicism.
0: Uh, and John Paul II, uh, when he was still a bishop in Poland, brought Campus Crusade to Poland. Uh, to teach Catholics how to evangelize. So um, when you read the testimonial literature, particularly by people who have left Protestantism for Catholicism, it becomes quite clear that it is not modern Catholicism that attracts them. It is uh, what could be called traditional or pre-Vatican II um, Catholicism. That is the ideal that they are chasing because... Um, the objective for them is to find something timeless, and that isn't necessarily what drives Catholicism today.
1: Yeah, and I, uh, well, I, I want to sort of end our, our our discussion talking about church polity, and I, I I've left a little bit more time for this just because I think that uh, uh, it is a it is a bigger issue. When uh, uh and I, I especially appreciate your your uh, uh, your use of independent churches as an example of how how this can be done not so very well. Um, it seems that in part the appeal of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy uh, is that there is a, a church structure uh, that independent churches uh, either lack completely uh, uh, and uh, uh, end up being totally devolved onto uh, kind of uh, individual I don't even I I can't even say individual congregations because that's not accurate. Right. Uh, Usually in these independent churches, there there are one or two people who are calling the shots, uh, but in such a way that it's hard to tell who they are. Uh, or you have sort of an open, uh, openly autocratic uh, institution focused on one person, whereas, uh, by contrast, in, uh, uh, in Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, you, you have much more structure, right? And, and there's something comforting uh, coming out of this sort of chaotic evangelical world where it seems like either no one is in control or the one guy runs your entire church. Uh, there, there can be some comfort in, in stepping into a, a stable institution. Uh, what 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 do we have to offer as evangelicals, right? Uh, what 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 can we do with our church governments uh, that, that can maybe offset some of that need that I think people feel for stability, for authority, for all of the things that that well, I, I, as your book points out, we, we used to have as Protestants, but have have been kicked overboard. I like your example of the ship. Um.
0: There isn't any perfect system of polity or church government, uh, but I would say that anything is better than strict independency. Um, because well, I'll strict,
1: push back as a Baptist in
0: a minute. <laughs> but but strict independency doesn't recognize any authority beyond the local congregation. Sure. It's not only Baptists who have preferred this. Uh, congregationalists have as well as what we're calling today independent Christianity. Um, And any one of the more traditional polities at least has safeguards. Um, The evangelical tradition that I grew up in recognized the autonomy of the local church, but it also had a district superintendent who was there as an advisor. Now, he, he had to be invited in but at least he was there as a resource and a counselor. Uh, I'm in favor of that. Um, The Presbyterian polity uh, doesn't have superintendents, but it allows the district or the presbytery uh, to advise and to caution uh, local congregations um, if there are problems. Uh, Methodism. Uh, has either superintendents or bishops. Um, and yet, uh, and, and Lutheranism the same way. Um, but these polities all give a fair measure of autonomy to the local congregation, but it doesn't stop there. But when you move into the Episcopal, Catholic, or Orthodox system, uh, then you have vested in the external bishop. Uh, an overriding power, um, which diminishes uh, the local congregation's ability to govern itself. So I'm not an advocate of anything beyond um, the advisory role of a district or a presbytery or a superintendent. Um, If you are going to maintain the necessity of bishops, it's pretty hard to go down that road without granting that bishops are intrinsically free from error. Um, and they're not. Um, and the malaise. That both Catholicism and Episcopacy are in today where um, bishops are either entrapped in gross personal sin or abusive situations Uh, should caution us that vesting that degree of authority in any single individual um, is um, a recipe for trouble. But the fact that such figureheads can go seriously astray does not argue uh, for the non-necessity of such authority figures outside the local congregation. So superintendents, districts, uh, presbyteries all offer the supervisory role, which independent Christianity very much needs.
1: Right, and, and obviously uh, when uh, when you have a, a a bishop or or a college of bishops or I, I don't know what the Methodists call their their gathering of, of leadership, but uh, when when you have something like that, uh, I I understand the appeal of it uh, aside from whether or not that's that's biblical. Um, uh, I understand the appeal of that. The the, the problem, of course, is uh, when when a group with that kind of authority. Uh, goes wrong right when it wanders into theological error or heresy well the entire denomination goes with them uh-huh. when when you have the the decentralized when you have the the more local autonomy uh the the top can go wrong and it doesn't necessarily drag down everyone as well uh, which would be my my argument for congregationalism that's uh, that's that's for a, a different time uh well, Doctor Stewart, uh, anything anything you'd like to add? Again, uh, this this book is uh, in search of ancient roots. Uh, we've we've only touched on bits and pieces of it, but uh, uh, it is a it is a long and thoughtful book. Um, anything you'd like to add to our listeners? Uh, we we give the last word to the the guest here, so so here's your chance to say whatever you'd like to say.
0: I don't have anything more to add, but I would encourage people to read the book for themselves and to form their own impressions. Thanks for the opportunity to
1: talk about it. Well, and thank you again for for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. And thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. If you have comments or questions, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com. Send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook page. Uh, Be sure to pick up a copy of In Search of Ancient Roots from InterVarsity Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. uh, And be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.